If you go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 2, we're going to be moving through verses 21 through 40. And I'm sure you've thought that the idea of following after Christ is, is based on faith, belief. That's something that uh, is inescapable. The idea that God can be trusted. Uh, it's the basis of actually the songs you just sang. Uh, you realize that the things you were thinking about and singing about were on the basis of trust. And that's really why God's word was written to us, so that we could have confidence. When we sing songs like we've just done, that we could sing them out. Not questioning, is that true? Is that something I can believe in? Well, 21 years ago, I saw an example of when you put trust in the wrong place, terrible things can happen. 21 years ago, I was involved with a man named Michael Collier. Now, when I say involved, that meant I was across the room from him. I didn't know the, the gentleman. He was a student at Georgia State University. And for some reason, I'd never found out why um, exactly, he wanted money. He came up to a bank in coming, and he held it up. He held it up and raced down 400. The police caught him. He had his license plate covered. They got him out of the car, guns drawn. He was caught in a matter of minutes, about 30 minutes. I was selected for jury duty, and so I was sitting in the jury box, and I was getting the instructions from the judge, along with my co-patriots in justice. And as the trial started, I was honestly looking forward to it. Not because I'm looking for justice as much as I'd love to see how people go about finding out the truth in the court system. I mean, I've watched a lot of Matlock. I've seen a lot of detective shows. My favorite is Columbo, but that's another story. As I sat there, they instructed us, and it was really clear you take the truth of the law and you apply it to a situation and you find out who's on the short stick and who's telling the truth. I was shocked to find out the first person that went up to the, to the jury box was a police officer. He began to tell the story of how he apprehended Michael Collier. The defense lawyer got up and immediately started questioning him in a pretty aggressive way. And he was only concerned about one thing. Did you find the gun? The police officer said, no, sir. Never found the gun. He said, well, then how exactly could it be armed robbery? At that point, the assistant district attorney, they, she uh, said, that's inadmissible. You can't be asking those questions. He dismissed the question. And I thought, wow, we're on to it here. <laughs> assistant district attorney had one line of reasoning. She had an overhead sitting next to the box. That was the back of the day where they had the overhead. You put some transparency on it, projects up. She simply walked up and she said, excuse me, police officer, so-and-so, can you please read what the law says? And she put it on the overhead. And he read it out. It was that if anybody was caught in the commission of a robbery, either with a gun or made the appearance or movement of a gun, it was considered armed robbery. In other words, you didn't have to have a gun. If you made the motion of a gun, and that's what this guy did, put his finger in his jacket, you're guilty of armed robbery. Okay, next, next person comes up. Call the clerk up, the person that was behind the, the register, behind the desk. Went through the whole thing. 
The defense lawyer gets up, gets up. Did you ever see a gun? No, sir. Never saw a gun. Did he ever threaten you with a gun? Never threatened me with a gun, sir. On and on and on. The lady, the assistant district attorney, did the exact same thing. Walked up, put the overhead on. Had the clerk read it. No more questions. Next person, somebody was in the lobby. Gets up. The defense attorney, I, 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 was, I was shocked. Gets up. Did you ever see a gun? No, sir. Never saw a gun. Were you ever threatened by a gun? No, sir. Never threatened by a gun. And in the back of my mind, I'm beginning to climb the walls. Because I'm sitting there thinking, what is this guy doing? There's a student who's looking at many years in prison. And this guy doesn't even know the law. Assistant District Attorney gets up, puts the overhead on, had the person that was in the lobby read it. No further questions. Every single time. Now the shocking thing about that was, we went back to the jury room, we got the instructions, it only took about an hour. We got back there, every one of us looked at each other and said, what do you think? The foreman of the jury said, guilty or innocent, I don't think we need to take a, um, a closed ballot, put your hand up if you think he's innocent, nobody. Put your hand up if you think he's guilty, everybody. And I sat there and I said, is there any way that we can talk to the assistant district attorney and the defense lawyer? Because I'd love to ask some questions. They came back to the room. And I asked the lawyer, the defense attorney, who was apparently from another state. He came in. I said, have you ever read Georgia law? And he said he had. And he said, but I thought it was a compelling enough line of argumentation that there was no gun. And honestly, I was flabbergasted. I couldn't believe it. Then I said to the assistant district attorney, I said, did any time during the discussions, did you think about offering a plea deal? He's a student, 21 years old, made a terrible mistake. Did you ever think about that? She said, I absolutely did. The defense attorney turned it down. I offered him two years. I said, can I do something? Can I, when I leave here, can I circle back into the courtroom? I would just like to hear the rest of the proceedings. They said, that's a little unusual. And I said, I'm not scared. Uh, um, no problem. The family's going to be in there. So I sat down. One after another, family members got up crying. He's a good boy. He made a bad decision. Good boy, bad decision. Good boy, bad decision. And in my mind, I'm think, sitting there thinking the defense lawyer is walking out of here. I came back with the verdict, 13 years. 13 years. I walked out of that courtroom thinking, you know, it really matters who you trust. If you trust a bad lawyer who thinks he knows the law but clearly doesn't, and he's horrible as it relates to being a defense attorney, you're in trouble. Michael Collier, I don't know where he is, but I do know he trusts people differently. He looks at lawyers completely differently. I know I've never seen a lawyer the same again. They matter. There's good and there's bad. Let's transition that to the idea of the Bible. Can you trust the Bible? Can you trust the people who wrote the Bible? That's really important. Uh, that's a weird thing maybe to say in church because you should be here locked and loaded on that trust factor. But this is the thing. It's, it's no joke. 
If you put your trust in the wrong thing, you're going to be sorely disappointed, like Michael Collier was. And that's why we stand on the truth of the Bible. We think there's good reasons to believe the Bible tells us what we need to know about God because it represents him because it was inspired by him. Tells you what you need to know about yourself. Tells you what you need to know about how you relate to God. In the passage today, we're going to see three stories that are really set for you to have confidence. You see, the book of Luke was written by a guy named Luke. And he was writing for a friend, and maybe an acquaintance, Theophilus. We've already talked about this. In chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, talks about the fact that he wanted to put an orderly account together of the life of Christ. And the reason why is because he wanted Theophilus to have certainty. Certainty that what he'd been taught growing up was actually true. And these three stories, we're going to call this this morning Operation Verification. Because very often we read these passages and we just kind of walk through them like we've heard them a lot. Maybe you have. But what you need to know is why they're there today. In the next two weeks we're going to talk about this. Luke is trying to pick out people who've put their trust in Christ and they look at their character of those people. Just like when you're putting somebody on the stand, if they're a trustworthy person, if they have high character, their word goes a long way. In the three stories that we're going to start to consider today, that's the exact reason why they're in there. We're going to think of Mary and Joseph. We're going to think of Simeon. We're going to think of Anna. And not just what they experienced, but who they were. Luke goes to great pains to stretch them out before us so that we can kind of inspect their life. That's what we're going to do. And before we read the passage, I want to let you know that of these three intersections of these lives of these people. And then there's going to be five statements in the long passage that we're going to read. We're going to go from verse 21 to verse 40. But there's five particular statements I want you to pay attention to. Because if we're examining the truthfulness of somebody, we've got to have a standard by which they're measured to see if they're truthful. In Michael Collier's case, we had the law, the the law of Georgia. In the case of the people that we're going to look at today, we have the law of the Lord. We have his standard. In other words, the agreement that Israel came into with the Lord at Sinai, there's certain things that they're supposed to do. And we can measure the character of people based on how they conform to that. If they play fast and loose with the law, then you can say, wow, should we really believe what was written about them? But Luke's point to Theophilus is, if they have the highest standard of character and they endorse Jesus Christ for being who he says he is, you should pay attention. Matter of fact, you should have confidence. And how many more of us need more confidence today to stand on what's right, to stand on what's what's true. Every one of us needs that. With all the voices that we have in our heads all the time, and all the different media, all the different sidelines and stories. So this is written for you. And if you're here today and you've questioned whether or not Jesus is worthy to follow, I'm really glad you're here. Luke is writing for somebody like you. Maybe you've been around Christianity a long time. But maybe your grip on Christianity has been failing. So this morning, as we walk through this passage, I want you to pay attention. Three stories, 
intersecting here. And five statements. Pay attention. Look for that word law as we read down through. Track the story of Joseph and Mary and Simeon and Anna as we read down through. All of this takes place at the temple. All of this takes place at a specific place for a specific reason. And Luke writes it in here. He doesn't write everybody's story, but he writes theirs. And he writes it so you could examine their life. And hopefully you could have confidence in what he writes. So let's look at this. It says this in verse 21 where we'll start. It says at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit in the tent of the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that it is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their town, own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, have you noticed through that passage, that idea of the law, the law in verse uh, 22, verse 23, verse 24, verse 27, verse 39. Uh, When you have something that's scattered throughout there, it's important to recognize it must have significance. It has significance not only to see how the people in the story conform to the law, because if they're playing fast and loose with the law, you shouldn't trust them. But also there's another angle. There's an angle that supports the actual birth of Christ, that Christ was born under the law. It says that in Galatians 4, 4 and 5 talks about the fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law to redeem those 
under the law. That's an incredibly important theological truth. That all of us are underneath the law. Meaning that there's a standard of morality that represents who God is. The Jews had it codified in the Ten Commandments. And you and I as Gentiles can see that and say this is who God is. He expects you to tell the truth. He expects you not to steal. He expects you to honor your father and mother, not to commit adultery, not make any graven images, not take his name in vain. All of these things, although they were binding for the Jewish people, within the covenant, they also are over our heads. What's important to realize that is that you've lied. You've stolen. Now you might say, well, you don't even know me. Oh, I know you well enough. You're an awful lot like me. You see, we're human. And see, when Jesus is born under the law, he's born to redeem us from outside. He comes under the law. He satisfies the standard of the law, never having broken the law. And then he goes to the cross and is treated as if he's a lawbreaker. So that you and I, who are lawbreakers, if we trust in him, our sins can be forgiven. Past, present, and future. That's the big picture of what's going on. But now can we believe it? Can we believe it to be true? Look at the first story I want to examine. Joseph and Mary. Uh, We've accepted them as uh, kids who are in a very difficult situation in which Mary is found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. We looked in that verse 1. She's a virgin. Joseph is a, a young man who's encounters an incredibly confusing situation in which his proposed wife is pregnant. A matter of fact, he has Gabriel, the angel, appears to him to help him understand what is going on. The trauma has been dramatic. But what are these two people like? That's what we've got to ask ourselves. He puts them as exhibit A of people that you can trust. Can we trust them? If you look over in Matthew chapter 1, 19 and 20, there's a description of Joseph that helps us understand who he is. It says, and her husband Joseph, being a just man, he finds out that his bride-to-be is pregnant. And then Matthew, in walking through that situation, introduces him to us as a just man. The word there could be translated righteous. That's really important. It doesn't mean that he's never done anything wrong. It just means that he's set his heart on doing the right thing. He's a righteous person. When Joseph was faced with an intersection of do this or do that, the category of being just would say he sought to honor the Lord in everything he did didn't mean he had salvation on his own. He certainly has sinned. But this word represents the fact that he lived a type of life that had integrity. It says he was a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him. In other words, he finds himself in a situation in which he finds out his bride-to-be is pregnant. He's considering these things. He doesn't fly off at the handle. He doesn't curse her out. It says here that he considers these things. I don't know Joseph. Never met him. But the fact that it says, and he considered these things, tells me a lot about him. Doesn't it? 
Does it tell you a lot about you? He seems like he's controlled. He's wondering. He's, he knows Mary. He knows this is, this is so unlike Mary. This is crazy. She's not like this. How in the world can she be this way? How could she be pregnant? And he thinks about how to put her away quietly. Why? Because he's a just man. He's not looking for a pound of flesh. He's looking to honor the Lord in a very difficult situation. So we get to know who Joseph is. So whatever he does in the story that's before us, whatever positive momentum he has towards Christ, Luke wants you to know you can trust him. Because when he was put in a vice of pressure, he considered these things. He didn't fly off the handle. So do you think he would fly off the handle when it comes to Jesus? Do you think he would lie to you? That's what Luke wants you to know. Do you think he would lie to you? And he starts piling up this evidence. And then if we look at Mary, look over at Luke chapter 138. She was told that she's going to be pregnant. She is pregnant and Gabriel tells her this. And this is what she says. This is how she responds. Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. In verse 38, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I mean, come on. Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be. She's a teenage girl. Zechariah in the previous story is told that he's going to have a son, John the Baptist. He wants proof. You know, he wants like some signature, you know. He wants more. How can this possibly be? I'm old. My wife's old. Come on. Stop playing jokes. Gabriel says, listen, I stand in the presence of God. You're not going to say anything until this baby's born. In other words, watch your mouth. She doesn't do this. Mary doesn't do this. She goes, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. You know, you can tell a lot about somebody when the pressure's on. I remember when I was in college playing in a football game. We had a running back that could, um, man, he could run. He could make cutbacks. He could do this. He could do that. He couldn't take pressure. We had a situation, fourth and two, and I said, we're going for it. He said, are you sure? I was playing quarterback. He said, you sure? I said, listen, John, you can make this yardage. Just do what you do. I don't know if I can. We're in the huddle and I'm sitting there arguing with the running back. You can make this. You just have to believe you can. You've been doing it all game. Under the pressure moments, you find out what someone's made out of. We made the first down, but I had to drag him to the line of scrimmage. In this pressure moment with Mary, she's told you're going to have a child. She doesn't think, hold on a second. What are my relatives going to say? What is Joseph going to say? What about this? I'll be disgraced. I don't want to do this. Get me out of this. She doesn't do this at all. I'm a servant of the Lord. Tells you a lot about her, doesn't it? Goes on to say in Luke 1, 46 through 55, she breaks out in song. She said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. God, my Savior. How could she be so confident in what was going to happen to her? Because she recognized God was her savior. God had her best in mind. He wasn't against her. He's my savior. If I can trust him with my soul, I can entrust him with this situation. This tells you an awful lot about them, doesn't it? 
Joseph and Mary. And as we're going to find out as we go through the rest of this, these just first few verses, and then we'll pick it up in 39 and 40, everything they do is right down the line. It's right on point. They obey the law. They go over and above. They do everything. And what Luke wants you to realize, what he wanted Theophilus to realize, you've put your confidence in people. And God was moving them to accomplish exactly what he wants you to know about him. You can have confidence. You can trust God. You can trust his word. And we can trust the word that we have represented here. Notice not only the eight days in this passage, uh, in Joseph and Mary, their background, but it says at the end of eight days, he was circumcised. He was called Jesus. Now, circumcision is very important. What exactly is going on here? What is this idea of circumcision and how does it relate? Well, it was an expression of the grace of God and it was a sign that was functioning on three particular levels. The first level would be this idea of a physical level. In other words, uh, it represented who specifically was Israel at the time. And I think that there's a physical dynamic that if you look through the medical journals, you can see the rate of cervical cancer and other diseases were much lower for the Jewish people. So I think that God's grace for them was expressed, relates to the physical dynamic of children being circumcised. The father could do the circumcision, or the mother could in very rare situations. Remember Zipporah? In the situation in Exodus 4.25, she did, or a designated person, a priest or somebody who was in the Jewish community, somebody who'd been trained in circumcision. And this is how it would go. Not back in this time, but this is what the modern ceremony would look like. The parents would say, the Lord has sanctified us by thy commandments and commanded us to enter our sons into the covenant of Abraham our father. And then the officiant would say, even as this child has entered into the covenant, so may he enter into a life of Torah, the marriage canopy, and good deeds. And everybody would know at that point that the parents are following the law. And they're aligning themselves with physical Israel. The second would be the idea of national reason. There's a national reason, not only physically that they would, there are physical benefits, but there are also a national reason, meaning that we are identified as Israel, as the people of God. Think about it like this. If you have a sports team that you like and you're into that sport, I bet you have a jersey. Do you have a jersey? Maybe even a high school jersey. You buy, the kids are on the team. You buy, you sit in the stands. And when you look in the stands, you see whose jerseys are in the stands. I've made no um, secret of my uh, fandom for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And one of the things I loved when they beat the Rams last week was (laughs) that you can see the the terrible towels waving. And I, I, I can look around the stadium instantly and say, we have more fans here than the Rams do. And this is in L.A., There's a national circumcision, certainly not a flag you wave above your head, but the idea, nationally, we know who Israel is. Because God has told us to do this. And it was a physical sign of an unconditional covenant God had made. That's very, very important. 
In Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 and 8, it says, I will establish my covenant between me and you, your offspring after you, throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. That's an amazing story. If you read that and read Genesis 15, Abraham is put asleep. In other words, Abraham has nothing to do with the covenant. And God makes a covenant with himself. Fascinating thing. How does God make a covenant with himself? Because you've got father and you've got son. The covenant is made between the son and the father in that moment. And Jesus, when he comes, he's acting out his part of the covenant, even in this story before us. But Abram, the important point, no, is he's asleep. He doesn't stand up and say, okay, you do this, I'll do this, or let me sign here, or I'll keep up my end of the bargain. No, you're asleep, Abraham. But then when Moses' covenant comes, the people are, go into it eyes wide open, and they fail it in a matter of days. But this is talking about an everlasting covenant. God says, I'm going to make a covenant with myself, that I'm going to make you a people, and that we know would be eventually... Faith alone is how you enter into that. But as a sign that you believe that. Not a work to do, but a sign to show that you believe that God is true to his word. Make sure your kids are circumcised. Because the offspring through which the Messiah is going to come is going to come through the line. So it's a picture of looking for the Messiah to come. And if you were an Israelite and you believe that, your work would follow you in circumcision. Just like if you're a follower of Christ today, you have works, you have good works. This was a form of a sign of what you believe to be true. And what's interesting about this is, you know the story. This is so serious that at one point, Exodus chapter 4, 21 through 24, you remember the story. The Lord is talking to Moses he says, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. You shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I, I will kill your firstborn son. You remember that story, right? It's a huge story, crescendo. It's like symbols going off. It's, you've seen it in cartoon form and maybe in... The Ten Commandments, that classic movie. Do you know that right after he says this in Exodus chapter 4, right after he says, Behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Talking about Moses' conversation with Pharaoh. The immediate verse after. Verse 24. And at the lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Hold on a second. What a plot twist. What are you talking about? Moses had not circumcised one of his sons. And God says, I'm going to do this and I'm going to bring the people out of Egypt. Hold the phone. Moses, you're not taking me seriously. I draw no exceptions. I'm going to kill you for disobeying me. Not believing me. Effectively. I want you to believe me before Pharaoh, but if you can't believe me right now, you don't trust what I've said to Abraham, I'm going to take you out. That's how seriously God took this. In other words, if you don't come underneath 
the coming Messiah pictured in the Abrahamic covenant, that means you're outside of that. That means that I've got no relationship with you. You're not trusting in me. And that means I'm a holy God. And Moses, you're not. If you don't place your trust in me and exact this sign, you're dead man. You're a dead man walking. If you know the story, you can read it. Circumcised and went on. That's how serious this was taken. It was a physical representation of a spiritual reality. There are people who say to me, well, Dan, don't you think people are sincere and there's a different roads that lead to heaven? Are you telling me that only what you believe is the way to go to heaven? I said, listen, I'm not, I'm not telling you nothing. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. There's no name. We sang about it this morning. There's no other name. It doesn't matter. I'm not making up the rules. Somebody might not think it's fair, but it's really not up to them either. It's God the creator. And he said, there's only one name. Give it among men, whereby you must be saved. Under heaven. Last time I checked, that Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses, none of that stuff qualifies. Jesus is the only name. So we see that in the Old Testament. But not only that, we see the fact that they've come and they've named Jesus Jesus. What's just interesting about that is because we see them actually following what the angels said. Now, I read the scriptures like this. Why didn't they name him something else? Why didn't they name him something like Noah? Why didn't Joseph and Mary name him Noah? It means comfort. Certainly the people needed to be comforted at the time. What about David? David would have been a great name. King David. This baby that's coming, there's regalness, there's a royalty, beloved, be a great name. What about another name, Ariel? Do you know what Ariel means? It means Lion of God. That's a great name, isn't it? That's an awesome name. But see, in this passage, it says they gave him the name Jesus, which means Jehovah is salvation, or Jehovah saves. But more importantly, Luke wants you to know, They named him Jesus, or Joshua would have been in the Hebrew. They named him that because that's what the angel said to name him. In other words, they didn't go rogue. They didn't make something up. They didn't just say, oh, it's a figment of our imagination. This is a better name. Let's do this name. God will be pleased with this name. No, they're they're trustworthy. Luke is writing all of this stuff so you can compare. What did Gabriel say to name him? And then they actually do. In in Matthew, what what was Joseph's life? He was a just man. He considered all these things. Wow, I would never do that. Man, he was a high quality character guy. Mary, when she's told this is what's gonna happen, she's, I'm a servant of the Lord. He's writing all this stuff so that when you read the gospel of Luke, you can say, wow, these people are trustworthy. And Luke is writing an orderly account so that you can have certainty because he wanted Theophilus to have certainty. Next week, we'll take up the rest of this where we get into 22 and 24. But I'd like you to read it because in the interim, the idea of the purification, what was that about? Well, they're following the law. The presentation, what was that about? Simeon begins to talk about the consolation of Israel. And by the way, Simeon was a righteous man, and he's devout. Then Anna, she's righteous, spends time in the temple. All of these stories are intersecting for you to go, I could trust somebody like that. 
And what do they say about Christ? I could trust somebody like that. What do they say he's going to do? I could trust somebody like that. And they tell me about a God that's represented in the Bible that I could base my life on. A few things I want you to consider as we finish our time. Just a couple questions that we do at the end of our time together. How does the message of Jesus' arrival inspire you? How does it inspire you? This is the idea of confidence. If you've been running low on confidence, I hope you're encouraged this morning. Let me give you a story. Miley Cyrus was asked what she believes. She said this, the one thing I'm really strong about regarding my religious beliefs is that you should know a little bit about everything before you define your own beliefs. I think all religions have a good practice in them. And her boyfriend and her had been reading about Buddhism lately, and it's all about hope and love. To me, faith is about having a clean slate and a clean start. The amount of things that are wrong with that statement are hard to actually quantify with any measurable instrument. The idea that you can know everything about everything. Buddhism, by the way, has no God in it whatsoever, and yet it's about hope and love. Um, She never read the Gospel of Luke. Never did. Because Mary and Joseph would totally oppose that. So would Simeon, so would Anna. So should you. If you've got friends who believe like that, you should pull up next to them and say, hey, can we talk a little bit about how you can trust what the Bible says, who God is, your need of a Savior. The message of Jesus' arrival should inspire us to stand tall, to not shrink back, have confidence Here's the deal. You can be in a room with PhDs who all deny God's existence and you're right. You don't have to prove anybody wrong to be right. But you better find your rightness rooted in the scripture. If it's just your idea, you're on your own. But if you can point to where scripture talks about it, you can stand tall and know you're not going to be ashamed. Second question. How does the intentional arrival of Jesus change how you see life? What I'd like you to consider is the things that might seem chaotic in your life now, Joseph and Mary and a child coming and just must have been emotional wrecks, nerves, but they met it with faith. I don't know what you're going through, but I know the answer is trust God. I just know that. Trust the Lord. People can help you piece things together, but fundamentally you're never going to outrun the simple reality that we have to trust God. You never question in the dark what you've believed in the light. The old statement. It's important. Third question. Who is it you can share this message with? Who is it you can share this message with? It's important for you to not let truth just stay with you. You really don't own something until you give it away. I've heard that statement. I think it's true. Who have you been expressing this true, this to? I think it's important. Because I've found in my own life that it seems like I grow stronger in my confidence with God when I'm expressing my confidence in Christ to other people. Maybe that's where it's at for you. Maybe you say, I've been struggling to trust God. It's because you've not been handing it off. I find that there's a spiritual fruit that comes that I get confidence, I begin to express who God is. And then when people have questions, I begin to engage those questions and I go and find out the answers to those questions and I come back and talk to them and all of a sudden a relationship is born. I'm not saying you'll hit it out of the park every time, but I'm saying you're called to make disciples. 
How are you sharing? Who are you sharing with? Have it in your mind before you leave. Who can you talk to? Family member, neighbor. Who is it? Waitress at the table today. Ask how you can pray for that person. Be giving it away and you'll find that you own it more secure than ever. As the band is coming up, I would like to pray as they come up, as they can make their way to the stage. We're going to pray. But I want to give you a moment or two just to consider the reality that you can trust the word you have before you. If there's something in your life that's holding you back, I would like you just to be silent and just ask the Lord to reveal himself to you so that you might turn away from something that is getting in the way. Maybe somebody you can share the gospel with. And after you're done doing that, I'm going to pray. So take a moment before the Lord. Lord, we recognize that what we really need is just to trust you. We would love to have a lot of answers. We would love to have the discipline that could go on for days. But really, fundamentally, all of those things fall in line behind just trusting you. And so we pray that you'd point out the things in our life that are holding that back. You'd make us aware of things that are getting in the way of the vibrancy. Would you open our eyes to the people around us who need to know about you and give us courage and boldness and help us to believe that you give us courage and boldness as we follow in obedience. Thank you for this time. Encourage us as a church so that we might make much of you. We want to spread your fame because you are awesome and we are thankful. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.